This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. More than 200 people in Maryland are serving a parole-eligible life sentence for offenses they committed when they were children. Yet no juvenile lifer has been paroled in the last 20 years in Maryland's current parole system. Social science and a growing body of neuroscience about young people's brain development clearly shows that young people's brains are more likely to make rash decisions. This is due to their lack of maturity, and young people are especially vulnerable to external forces. They are, by definition, still developing. The fact is that in Maryland, children cannot buy cigarettes or drive a car because their brains are still developing but they can get sentenced to life in prison. One of the reasons why no one who was a child when they were sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole has been paroled in the last 20 years is because when they go up for parole, the Parole Commission often administers a risk assessment. Maryland's current risk assessment tool that uses an algorithm called Violence Risk Appraisal Guide, or VRAG. It seems objective. After all, what decision maker wants to release someone with a violent offense, who has been labeled moderate risk or high risk by an objective scientific tool administered by a clinician. But new research shows that tools like VRAC are not as unbiased and accurate scientific tools that they have been promoted to be. Today, we are joined by Earl Young, who was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole as a young person, and James Folds, the assistant professor in the Department of Information Systems at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and Sonia Kumar, senior staff attorney at the ACLU of Maryland, to talk about what barriers exist for people to get a real meaningful opportunity at earning a second chance, how racism and bias show up in algorithms, how it impacts people's lives when we deny incarcerated people the hope of redemption, and what you can do to support meaningful reforms in our criminal legal system for incarcerated people. Sonia, Earl, James, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Sonia, I want to start off with you. Um, in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Miller versus Alabama that people who are sentenced when they were children for a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole violates the Eighth Amendment and is unconstitutional. Given that case, can you tell us why the ACLU is representing Marylanders challenging the state system of, of parole? Sure. So in the Supreme Court's decisions, particular Miller versus Alabama and some of its other cases, what it basically was saying was that we, our criminal justice system can't treat people who are kids at the time of their offense exactly the same as we treat adults. And that's especially important when we're imposing the harshest punishments possible. So in the same way that our laws recognize, for example, that Someone who is 15 years old is um, is different from someone who is 25 years old for the purpose of a driver's license. The criminal legal system should also make uh, those distinctions. Most importantly, the Supreme Court said that when it comes to the punishment of life without parole or a sentence that causes someone to die in prison, essentially, um, it is cruel and unusual and except the rarest of cases. 
Um, so that was a legal landscape. Um, meanwhile, at the time that we filed our case, um, even though there were around uh, 300 people serving life sentences in Maryland for offenses that were committed as kids, no, um, no, no one had been paroled um, in more than two decades who was a kid at the time of their offense serving a life sentence. And so our lawsuit was really about ensuring that Maryland was complying with the obligation to make sure that if you were a kid who, um, even if you committed a very serious crime, if you were a kid and you demonstrated your maturity, your rehabilitation, and you did all the right things, that the law would recognize your right to a second chance. So why does you know Maryland condemn young people to spend the rest of their lives in prison without any meaningful chance of parole, um, particularly when, you know, not taking into account a person's age and their, you know, brain development? So um, the truth is that Maryland's system of parole is broken for everyone serving a life sentence, not just those who are kids at the time. So Maryland is unique among other states because the only person with the authority to release anyone serving a life sentence from prison is the governor. And um, as a practical matter, uh, what that has done is completely politicize the parole decision-making process. In a very sort of common sense way, parole has become a very political decision. There's no, there's no um, real perceived political benefit to letting someone out of uh, prison. In fact, it's seen as just exclusively a political risk, right? Like you, because of the fear that something could happen, it's impossible to perfectly predict what will happen. And um, the result is that our system, instead of operating like a traditional system of parole, where if you meet certain benchmarks and you generally do the right things, you can have a realistic expectation that you will return to the community, um, opportunities for release are extremely rare uh, the entire process is shrouded in secrecy, and it's very unpredictable. So it's very difficult to actually discern whether, you know, you can have multiple people who've done all of the right things, and there may be one person who kind of earns the uh, approval of the governor through clemency, but not parole. It's not a critique of any one governor. It's a critique of the structure that we have in place. And I think uh, past governors who, you know, after they leave office um, will acknowledge uh, that flaw in the system and have acknowledged it. Um, so, for example, in Virginia, uh, if you are serving a life sentence and you are considered for parole, you're considered every single year. And you're considered by a decision-making body that is the same and that can see you mature over time. In contrast, in Maryland, um, you might be considered once by a particular governor um, and then never again. And what that does is that really distorts our system so that the decision making is political, secret, and um, and not nearly as informed by sort of um, information and evidence as it could be in other places. And so that system has been broken for decades in Maryland. And because of the Supreme Court's decisions, there was finally an opportunity to sort of tackle those concerns head on. And Earl, um, can you talk to me about your experience when you were incarcerated? For instance, what age were you when you were incarcerated? I was arrested at the age of 16, and I was convicted at the age of 17. And I spent 34 years, 7 months, and 27 days in prison. 
And can you tell me, you know, within that, you know, span of what, over three decades, what are some things you did while you were incarcerated to become a better person, to, you know, improve yourself? Initially, um, it was difficult. It was difficult to do something positive when I went from being normal, um, making a mistake, to putting inside of a abnormal environment. This wasn't a, no, uh, an environment that I was used to, so it took some adjusting. It took uh, acclimating myself to a new set of standards, a new set of rules. So bettering myself didn't start instantly. It took a period of graduating through the the newness of being there, the difficulties of adjusting and mentally understanding that the rules that I used to live by no longer applied inside of this new place, this new society. I want to say um, by the fourth year, the fourth year to the fifth year was when I started listening to uh, individuals that were older than me that I seen mature, that I seen um, in their actions, it reflected that they were different. They were about positive. It started out with the mentorship. Um, it was a lot of self-help programs, but I wasn't ready for them at the time. It took me um, growing, being patient, um, it took me understanding that I couldn't uh, operate off of uh, impulsiveness before I took advantage of the few programs that was available. I mean, I feel like what Earl is saying also really reflects exactly what the Supreme Court has said, which is that when we are younger, I mean, it's just a reality that young people are more impulsive, we're more risk-taking, we're less able to appreciate the consequences or sort of look to the long term. And the the trajectory that you're describing is exactly what the Supreme Court said. Over time, we mature, and that shows up in that showed up in how you were able to participate in the few things that were available. Earl, over that course of time um, that you were incarcerated, did you see other people who were in similar situations, perhaps this year yourself, trying to go through the parole system? And you know, what were the results? It was quite a few individuals that I literally witnessed go through the parole process. Some parole decisions you you we didn't get. You'll see somebody um, trying their hardest, doing their best. And they still get a rehear. They get a, a parole rehear that just didn't make sense at that time. But they were fewer than the norm. The norm was do what you're supposed to do. And the parole board, case management and the parole board pushed you through the system. And then it stopped. The system came to a screeching halt in 1993 with um, an individual who was out on work release program um, whose name was Rodney Stokes. And he murdered his uh, girlfriend and killed himself. 
at that point, Secretary of Public Safety and Division of Corrections, along with then Governor Glenn uh, Schaefer and then Glenn Denny, they brought back in all of the individuals who were on the work release programs, who were in minimum secu- minimum security, who were having family leaves. They all were returned back to medium security until uh, the system was looked at or looked over to see if a mistake or situa- a situation like this can be prevented. And everybody waited with bated breath for years and it didn't change. And, you know, what what impact, you know, has that really had on people who are inside when, you know, they they do all these, you know, things that, that you're, as you, as you said, you're, they're making positive steps, but they don't really have a real meaningful chance of, of getting out through the current parole system. For me and individuals like me, the impact was... Uh, was was grave. I mean, it was severe. You had, we had to dig so deep to continue doing positive when nothing positive was being returned. Nobody was getting breaks through the Maryland parole system. Everybody was holding on to hope that were uh, doing constructive but the ones who started to fall short and their hope started to diminish, they started participating in more and more negative in prison. They started to succumb to uh, mental issues. They started succumbing to substance abuse. They started succumbing to uh, damaging behavior towards um, staff in the system. I mean, it was it was it it was demoralizing to be hopeful and then don't see anything. You don't see anybody progressing. But for some, I mean, you, you have to dig so deep, you know, to say, nope, I'm still going to do my best today. Nope, I'm going to do my best tomorrow. I mean, they go to sleep, wake up and hopefully, prayerfully, you know, things can change tomorrow. A decision can come down from the courts, like in the Miller case, to give um, individuals hope, like it did with the uh, Unger situation, which um, affected the individual sentence prior to 1980. So everybody's holding on to something until they lose grip. You can only hold on for so tight, for so long, before you lose it. Um, and actually, in James, one thing that we have actually learned as a result of the of this case is that in Maryland um, parole system it uses a risk assessment tool. It's basically an algorithm called the Violence Risk Appraisal Guide, or VRAG. Um, for the non-tech people out there, uh, what is an algorithm? Let's just start with some basic <laughs> terminologies. An algorithm is a lot like baking a cake. So in a cake, uh, you take some ingredients and then you do some steps, and then out, pop, out pops something, a cake, right? Uh, so you put it in the oven, and before that, you mix some things together, right? Uh, so an algorithm takes uh, some input, 
uh, and then uh, does some processing. So you'd follow some steps, like the steps to make the cake, and then out pops something, uh, which may be the answer to a question. Uh, or, for example, with the VRAG, it can be uh, a score uh, that determines uh, the likelihood that you will uh, uh, reoffend. So we should think in the context of an algorithm like the VRAG for risk assessment, uh, there are really two types of algorithms happening here. So the VRAG takes as input uh, answers to a series of questions, which I believe are assessed by a psychologist. Uh, uh, Sonia may correct me. Uh, and then uh, out pops this uh, score that says how likely you are to reoffend. Uh, before that even happens, there needs to be an algorithm to determine what VRAG does, uh, which is usually done using some kind of statistical process. So take people's data uh, and then uh, observe their outcomes and then try to uh, fit some model that makes a prediction. And I'm telling you, for in the Maryland context, the VRAG tool is is used for what? What what, what part of the process is it used then? So in Maryland system, because the governor is the final decision maker, there's a whole series of steps. The first step is you have a hearing before two parole commissioners, who then, if they think you're sort of worthy of the net, of proceeding, um, send you for a risk assessment, and then that comes back and uh, that decides sort of whether you go to the next level, which has been considered by all of the parole commission. And then if you pass that, then you are considered by the governor. And so uh, the in Maryland, um, the VRAG is a plays a very big part in the decision making of decision uh, of the folks deciding whether someone will either, you know, sort of proceed in the parole process or be re returned back. And, um, and you know, the more we have learned about Maryland's more parole process through our case, the more we have seen how directly someone's score on the risk assessment actually is pegged to uh, the opportunity they have to be released. And James, you know, I often thought, you know, I I personally thought that, you know, algorithms in many ways are supposed to be perfect, right? They, they're supposed to be able to answer things in a many ways an unbiased way than, um what you know a person could do who's like me making an assessment um and you know they make you know predictions based upon you know those uh based upon that math formula have you found that perception to be true in your research algorithms are not necessarily perfect they have the opportunity to perhaps create a more perfect system but if we're not careful they may not be perfect uh, so there's a saying that uh, every computer science or information system student will hear at one point in their career, which is garbage in, garbage out. So uh, we need to think hard about, you know, what are we putting into these systems uh, and uh, is it giving us the answers that we want? And so what are some of the ways that, you know, algorithms like VRAG um, can be biased? One way that an algorithm such as VRAG can be biased is uh, something called a proxy variable. Uh, so this is a quantity or an input that it's given uh, that is related to uh, or correlated with uh, some other uh, quantity that we would not like it to be correlated with. Uh, so a protected category like uh, race or gender. One example of this, which is not in the VRAG, but uh, could have been, is a zip code. Mm -hmm. Uh, so in the United States, due to historical uh, uh, segregation policies, zip code is highly correlated with race. And so you, then you could remove the race attribute from your system, uh, but then give it zip code, and effectively you have given the system race. Uh, 
Uh, so VRAG does have some uh, variables that could be considered to be proxy variables, uh, such as uh, were your parents separated by age 16, uh, which is uh, correlated with race and other things. So uh, that, that's one way that, uh, that such a system can um, be given data that may be considered unfair. Uh, there are many other ways. Um, we should also consider you know, whether the data is uh, recent and accurate. So many of the inputs to the VRAG system uh, consider historical factors that have nothing to do with uh, you know, how you may have changed or improved your life in uh, perhaps the years since you were incarcerated. And telling you, are there other like examples um, within the VRAG system that you could give us to show like exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about you know the bias or how it's not perfect? Yeah. So the VRAG, I mean, one thing I want to say is that you know there's this way in which we learned about the risk assessment from lifers who were telling us there are these risk assessments that are happening that seem like are making us sound like we're really dangerous and we know that doesn't compute with what we know about each other. And so that was what prompted us to look at what kinds of questions are asked. And so in addition to the example of sort of whether you've been separated from your parents before age 16, one of the big one of the questions is about the extent to which you were the subject of school discipline. Um, in Maryland, that's something that is well documented to have race disparities in every county. And um, and if we think back to the 70s, 80s and 90s, that was even more so then than now. Um, other examples are charges for nonviolent offenses. Um, there are huge documented race disparities and who gets charged, for example, with marijuana or who has been charged with marijuana possession that falls along racial lines. Um, likewise, in admissions to jail, who's, you know, gone if you've been um, held in jail pretrial, uh, there's well documented stuff from, you know, documented by the state itself saying that there are huge race disparities in Maryland. Um, based on race, right, uh, in who is uh, detained pretrial. So from our perspective, the VRAG is really aggregating all of these racial disparities when it's generating the score. And, you know, what can be done to address some of the bias, um, you know, if any of these algorithms and these type of tools? So we need to take a careful uh, scientific look at it uh, and not just think about you know, what is the overall accuracy of such a tool, but what are the impacts of that tool? Uh, and it's easy to say, oh, it has this accuracy level or um, the area under the ROC curve and so on. We can look at those metrics, uh, but we also need to think about, you know, what is it uh, doing to people and are there proxy variables we should fix? Uh, this is a process that needs to be done slowly and carefully uh, perhaps with many stakeholders in the room and experts uh, and until we can uh, come up with an improved system. And Earl, I'm actually curious, what um, what has your life been like since you've been released? Life for me since I've been released has been methodical, <laughs> slow, and exciting. I'm experiencing life as an adult through child eyes. I mean, for the first time uh, in three months, I experienced Sam's Club. <laughs> you talking about unbelievable. <laughs> I was in Sam's Club, and the first thing that I saw 
was the biggest TV I've ever seen in my life. And I'm saying, this is not a theater TV. This is something that you can literally, I could literally walk out the store with today. One of the things that we should talk about um, for years in, in, in the penitentiary and in various other prisons was how technology has um, constantly um, improved. Things have become so modern that, you know, it's the old Dick Tracy stuff that was in cartoons is really in life. It's, it's, I was driving past a mall and I looked over and seen a relic. I seen a payphone. This is the first telephone I've seen since I've been home. These are the 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 all moments that I've been having. I mean, now all of them are not as exciting as you know the two that I just mentioned. Um, one of the things that you know was bittersweet is you know coming home to little to no family. You know, um, doing my incarceration of thirty. Four plus years, I lost my entire immediate family. Majority of my aunts and uncles, my my parents' siblings, my grandparents. So we're talking about early on going into a system and not trusting anybody. Now I'm returning to society and I'm real cautious about who I trust. I don't have the people around me that I uh, instinctively knew. Now I have people that I have learned to know and I'm growing with them, but I'm, you know, still a little suspect, still, you know, all right, let me, let me see what you're doing. Because, you know, one of the things that, that I was determined, not, I'm determined now more so than ever not to do is to fall victim to anything negative that I consciously did or will consciously do. And I'm cautious about who I associate with. Um, you know, individuals are out here living and doing whatever they want to do. And coming from the inner city, a lot of it is, isn't positive. So again, I'm cautious. So Sonia, can you tell me the unique circumstances in which um, led Earl's being released? His sentence was commuted by Governor Hogan. And um, what's important to understand is earning a grant of clemency or commutation is is almost like winning the lottery. It's something you really can't expect or predict. Um, and it's really wonderful when it happens. Um, but that's very different from parole, where there the there's supposed to be an expectation of some clear standards, a sense that if you do the right things, if you follow the rules, that you can earn your earn your your um, grant of parole. Um, and that's the distinction uh, that has been lost in Maryland. So in the rare and exceptional case, uh, someone uh, like Earl will win the lottery uh, through an act of clemency from the governor. But there is no functioning system of parole to ensure that all of the Earls who are still inside are able to have a meaningful shot at returning to the community. So, Sonia, um, I wanted to know, should the government use tools um, like this in assessing people? Well, I don't think 
that the state should use the VRAG for people serving life sentences and particularly for those who were kids at the time um, of their offense for all of the reasons we've discussed, but also in particular because the VRAG um, only consider it freezes you in time as to who you were the moment you walked in the prison door. So it doesn't take into account at all. By definition, it doesn't take into account you know, for example, Earl's 34 years that he spent incarcerated. Um, so for that reason alone, um, the VRAG is not an accurate predictor of um, of for, for lifers, but also in particular those who were kids at the time. I think in general, you know, one of the most important things is for decision makers to understand the limitations that are inherent in risk assessment generally. And in, um, I mean, and I think for people serving life sentences in particular, or people who've served very long sentences, understanding that the ability of tools to sort of precisely um, uh, evaluate risk is even lower. So uh, all of the tools tend to overpredict risk for people who have served uh, very long sentences or for serious offenses. And um, at least based on what I've seen, uh, also tend to have uh, at least a risk of really significant racial disparities. So I think one other really important thing is for decision makers to, you know, there's two things. One is don't over rely on the tool, right? Limit how you're using it, understand what it can and can't do. Um, but then also center equity in your evaluation of a tool and whether uh, it's reliability, be atten attentive to the, you know, the example James provided earlier about the false positives in the compass tool where it was falsely predicting a higher rate of reoffending for black people who were subjected to the tool than white people. And, you know, what are some things that you want people to do to support, um, you know, the, both the case and also the reform of the um, of tools like like VRAG? I mean, I think uh, there's this temptation to feel like the information that's out there is really over our heads, right? Like when I first started hurting about risk assessments, we sort of, like you said earlier in the podcast, we equate math and uh, and data with things that are sort of objective. And I think one of the most important things just every person can do is to maintain that inherent sense of skepticism and analysis about the limitations of tools to assess risk and algorithms in general, which are increasingly sort of governing um, various aspects of what we, what kinds of opportunities we have, um, and um, in terms of you know supporting um, fairness in our parole process generally, I think um, one of the most important things is for people to really absorb Earl's story and understand that he is. Uh, the rare person who gets to tell the story on the outside, but um, there are scores of people just like him who remain incarcerated because Maryland relies um, so heavily on the uh, the VRAG in its decision making. Uh, our lawsuit um, in Maryland was brought on behalf of an an organization called the Maryland Restorative Justice Initiative, but also three individuals who are who like Earl were people who committed their offenses as kids and have spent decades, many decades in prison. Um, one of our clients is Calvin McNeil, who went to prison for a crime he committed at age 16 and has been incarcerated for almost four decades now. 
Um, he has a nearly perfect record in prison. So when he first got to prison, he had a, a couple of um, issues where he got written up for being disrespectful or something like that. But he's never had a violent incident. He never was caught with a weapon or drugs or anything like that. And um, throughout his incarceration, earned the respect of staff, of the people around him, has mentored other people, has held jobs that require high levels of trust. Um, when he was assessed uh, by the VRAG, however, it said that he presented a moderate risk of reoffending, meaning that uh, the by the tools math, uh, you know, people in that category within five years, there was a f- like close to fifty percent chance that they would commit another crime, a violent crime, and within ten years, that number was even higher. Um, that doesn't isn't at all consistent with sort of who. Calvin has become over time. Um, but um, that uh, score was the primary reason that the governor gave in refusing to uh, grant Calvin parole earlier this year. And so, um, and Calvin's situation is not unique. And so there are, um, you know, at this point, any number of people who have demonstrated their maturity and rehabilitation in any sort of common sense understanding of that, um, but where because of the flaws inherent in, in this tool in particular, continue to be labeled as much higher risk than they are. And James, um, what do you want politicians and the public to know from you know a scientific perspective um, about algorithms and tools like this? So I want people to know that algorithms are not perfect. They can be better than uh, what we would do without algorithms if we design them well and if we keep improving them and keep monitoring them. Uh, But uh, it's not a guarantee. So when it comes to algorithms, we need to be careful. We need to work hard uh, and make them better. Uh, One example that I think we will all soon become more and more familiar with is self-driving cars. So if you think about how Tesla has uh, created a system that will already now uh, take over from driving, uh, that system works well most of the time, but there have been cases where it has failed and has caused fatal accidents. And so this is a case where uh, a system has made our lives better, and it does work pretty well, but it does also have problems with it. Uh, and uh then they needed to go back and you know, improve the algorithm and make it better. And so I think this is a continuous process. Uh, we need to constantly monitor and improve our algorithms and systems. And uh, if we do that, then we can really make a better world. And Earl, what do you want people to know about you, know, you and other people who were incarcerated when, when they were children? What do you want the public to know? That youthful offenders are just that, they're youth who are making uh, risky decisions, they're making poor decisions, they're making adolescent decisions, and some of them may be minor and some may be major, but they're still youth. They're still not old enough to understand the layers of the ramifications of their actions. And, you know, 
we you know we talked about what 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 you want the public to know, but what do you want you know state leaders, people who actually have the power to change the system? Um, what would you like them to either do to change the parole system, or what would you like them to know about um, you know people like you when they're making those type of decisions? The system works when you allow it to work. I went in to the Division of Corrections with hope of making it out. Allow the system to work. The system change with one negative experience. Mistakes happen. Things happen. Poor decisions happen. But you don't or we shouldn't completely change a system that was working and you had one individual, one variable that changed. Allow the system to to work. Allow the individuals who are put into place to uh, grow because literally I grew up with parole commissioners. We know the names, we know the faces. They grow with you. They see what you're doing. Allow the system to work. Well, Sonia and James and Earl, thank you so much for joining us for today. This is a really interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to rate and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. This show was recorded at the Baltimore Improv Group and was recorded on Piscataway land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.